0: Good evening ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this meeting of the historical group of the Society. Professor Keith Hayward is the Head of Research in the Society here. He was formerly Head of Economic and Political Affairs at SBAC and Professor of International Relations at Staffordshire University. Is going to talk to us about the mergers in the British aircraft industry between 1957 and 61, and tell us about the offers that they couldn't refuse. Keith Hayward.
1: I think your introduction tells us an awful lot of what was wrong about the British aircraft industry in the late fifties, early sixties. To be honest, but no, again, I, I'm not a, as many of you know, I'm not, I'm not sentimental about uh, about aircraft or, or products or whatever. Um, I like. Coming back to this, in a sense, I, I, as many of you know, I, I tend to look at the contemporary developments in, in, in not just the UK aerospace industry, but uh, globally. Coming back to this period, it's like going back to a, an old girlfriend, where it actually has got more alluring with the passing of the years. Because my first full book was on the, the, the government and British civil aerospace from 1946 through to the um, early, uh, 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 early 80s. And this, of course, was one of the fascinating background chapters because I was really fa- focusing on, 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 on the Airbus years and, and the, um, the collapse at Rolls-Royce. But coming back to this, finding the, pub, finding the stuff in the archives has actually been fascinating. I mean, I haven't actually changed my overall opinions about this period, but the richness of material that I've got from, not just the government records, but as you will see in a moment, I will be citing stuff from Vickers, English Electric, Andy Havilland board-level papers, which, again, a remarkable survival job. If any of you are, and as I suspect many of you are, familiar with business history archive, very difficult. And there are gaps in this presentation, I'll be the first to admit. I've not yet been able to find much at board level relating to Hawker Siddeley Group and its, um, as you will see, very ruthless campaign to acquire what was left Uh, 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 of the British aircraft industry in the latter part of this period. Now, I've called it offers they couldn't refuse, because in my way, I see this as a mixture of the godfather and, yes, minister. Indeed, what we've got here are the interplay at board level, struggles between companies, between individuals. There are one or two ghostly figures lurking in the background who's... Who have become somewhat saintly figures in this aircraft industry. George Edwards, for example, has his fingers over some of the exercise we will see here, but he's never actually found there with a smoking gun. Although I did find one interesting handwritten note from Sir George, which I shall, uh, I shall cite in due time. And of course, we do have the godfather, Duncan Sands, who will figure as both villain and Supervillain, perhaps, in this exercise. You could say this could have been a TV series.
2: And I think there are enough people in this audience
1: to know that the, and probably have lapped this up in the 1960s when ITV, in its, in its wisdom, set two programs in and about the British aircraft industry and its power politics. The Power Game and The Plane Makers. Well, you couldn't make it up, could you? Now, to use a, a, another um, literary analogy, this is a bit like Day of the Jackal. We all know in the end that the assassin, the jackal, does not get his target. So we have, in a sense, the denouement already worked out for us. But the interest is how he is tracked down. So we know how or what happened. We have a series of mergers in the British aircraft industry that transform the industrial landscape from between 1946 and 61. Now, okay, before any, any nitpickers in the audience, and I suspect there are many, that were mergers before 1957. But the big period of rationalization is this short, intense activity between 57 and 61, and then even more so between October 1959 and February 1960, and just so Frank doesn't moan, oops, we also have a, a comparable pattern in the engine sector. This is one of my omissions. I, I'm, I'm leaving out engines, I'm leaving out helicopters, primarily because it was relatively straightforward, uh, and quite frankly, I've not yet got around to looking at the records. Well, what am I going to talk about in the next 40-odd minutes? Well, I'm going to give some background, but again, forgive me again if I sketch over the the trials and travails of the British aircraft industry as they emerged out of the immediate post-war planning period. I'm going to be focusing quite clearly on some of the immediate events that will lead up to the rationalization period, particularly the impact of the the Sandys' Defense White Paper of 1957. And... Interestingly enough, the work of an interdepartmental committee, the Aircraft Industry Working Group, which was remitted to examine the future of the British aircraft industry in 1957 to 58. And whilst policy was being formulated um, on the hoof, as it were, this bunch of civil servants were also trying to figure out a a rational way of coming to terms with a a, a significant policy problem. Then we'll get down to real nitty-gritty stuff. And we'll look at the negotiations that were carried between, particularly between October 59 and 62. I'll take a look at the the so-called Sandys Marriage Bureau. But what I really want to talk about, and this was the gem of of my archival-based research, were the negotiations between English Electric and Vickers and de Havilland, with clearly Sandys as an active party in this process. This gentleman, sorry, oh, ladies and gentlemen, was the merger that never was. And evidently, one of the things that we perhaps like to tease out in the discussion at the end is a wonderful hypothetical, what if Aubrey Burke had said yes to Lord Caldicott and Lord Knollys in November 1959, and they'd done the deal to create a different type of BAC or at least a, a BAC with a different set of industrial players. I'll also have a little look at, at some of the other more direct aftermath. Uh, I know there are, there are many people here who have an interest particularly I, I, in Hanley Page, and I, I, I know there's a, um, there is an a anniversary event this year. And he clearly, his company, both personally and corporately, were the most high-profile victim of um, the merger operation, or at least... Of the way in which government policy moved focus resources on the surviving groups, but in passing, I'll also mention this again—a bit of research I've still to do—is the way in which BOAC was also, or at least BOAC's balance sheet, was sacrificed to the interests of the airframe industry. So let's move on. Well, we can have a let's let's okay, get it get it out of Boo if you wish. Boo. Now, I mean, I'm not going to go I, no, into, into Duncan Sands in great detail, but he, the, the fact that he does figure, now someone called him already, his shrunken glands on I, that's a bit sad, right? Really. He was a well-connected politician. That is, in a sense, all we need to know. Very well-connected. He was, after all, um, married to one of the, the Churchills. And he was well-established in... Um, in a Tory party. He, he, in a sense, he, he never quite made it as a, as a front rank politician. But nonetheless, as Minister of Defence in, 50, in 57, he sets, in a sense, this whole ball rolling. Or else, if he doesn't set it rolling, he gives it one almighty shove in the direction of rationalisation. And then, of course, as an activist Minister of Aviation, in that short period between October 59 and the, the new year of, of 60, he plays an active part in banging heads together and creating the conditions which would lead to the formation of bac hawker sidley and the other um, grouped companies and in a sense he is the, he is the sort he is the in a sense the legate the, the continuing figure in this exercise so for better or for worse this is the godfather now what was policy Oh, it was an amazing combination of let's do something about the aircraft industry, but we'll do it indirectly. We will do it, in a sense, by trying to change market conditions. Uh, A a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, indeed, he he was one of the first people to write about this industry uh, in 1962-63. He's got a piece in, in the Aeronautical Journal. Calls this government manipulation by contract. A monopsonist. Single customer manipulating that power to enforce industrial policy, but it's indirect. It's never planned. There is no, and one of the points in my longer version, I I do discuss that it's not. This is not French. This is not France, you know, that has a plan and will tell companies where they're going to go. This was to let mark the market take its take its take its toll, as it were but giving it some nudges in, and, and we'll let the private companies get on with it. But it was evident, and again, I'm not going to go into great detail, by 1955-56 the British aircraft industry was in some trouble. The Korean War rearmament program was, un- was unwinding. Programs uh, were, 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 were coming to an end. We know full well that the commercial aircraft industry had had some disappointments. Let is not we, let's not dwell too much on, on the comet, as well as some successes. Uh, false dawns, perhaps, ladies and gentlemen, but nonetheless, it was problematic. Costs were rising. Um, I, I use the modern phrase, intergenerational costs, modern, particularly amongst military aircraft. And we were running out of procurement scope. There were embarrassments. Oh! Procurement embarrassments in the United Kingdom? How rare. Um, I refer you to the Vickers <coughs> Supermarine Swift which actually creates an interesting little frisson of crisis in 1955, leading to, leading to a white paper on the supply of military aircraft. And a very interesting Select Committee of Estimates report the following year, in 56, where an undersecretary, a guy called Dennis Heverland, no relation, talks about the ministry wanting to encourage a rationalization in the British aircraft industry trying to avoid Boogin's turn of contract allocation. And that the ministry had, ominously here, candidates for relegation. Never said which, and by the way, I've never actually been able to discover in the record so far whether the ministry did have a list of candidates for relegation. But nonetheless, they were looking in 1956 to secure a rationalization of the industry. Now... In a sense, what really gives um, the process that kick is the declaration of no more manned aircraft in the Sandys White Paper of 57. Again, if you look carefully, this had been anticipated by earlier White Paper, so we don't want to go down that route. But the military demand, in short, was going to decline. And that while the short term for the British aircraft industry was still looking okay, there would be a crisis in that industry between 61 and 63, as predicted by the Ministry. And we begin to see, exactly as Haviland, Dennis Haviland, the growth of a policy of non-intervening, but intervening. But there had to be some basis for consideration. This is why I want to spend a little bit of time looking at the, the aircraft industry working group. There was a continuing commitment to the industry. And I quote, one official memoed the cabinet in June '57. Simply to discontinue support for the British aircraft industry would leave us so far behind other countries that we'll be forced to retire from the air business altogether. We must maintain the momentum of forward research at government expense and give effective, if gradually, diminishing state support to the development of selected civil projects. So there was an underlying commitment to do something about the British aircraft industry, but the underlying pressure was to cut costs The Treasury certainly was very concerned at the amount of money proportionately that was going on the aircraft industry from the research and development budget. But it was also evident that if something wasn't done to maintain capacity in the aircraft industry, critical mass would disappear to minimum in the 1960s. There was a a calculation or an estimate that without a successful shift to civil production away from military aircraft dependency, an aircraft industry of about 160,000 that was likely to go under normal under normal trends could drop as low as 60,000 by 1964. Clearly, this would be an industry that would cease to be world class. But it was something, therefore, that the ministry had to try to. Well, it couldn't spend, or it was the treasury was on, was pressuring government not to spend too much more money. But there would be some money available. But above all industry had to be of a sufficient size or companies had to be of sufficient size to enable them to put their own money increasingly into civil production. Remember, already the government had insisted, had shifted away from the Labour government's commitment to planned investment in the 1945-51 period and was already forcing Vickers and de Havillands and such like to put money into civil airplanes under private venture policies but they recognized that there were limitations in the old structures. And in order to maintain a solid base for the industry, the idea of grouping began to take solid form in the ministry. And how to do this? Well, we will use whatever contracts that we have to encourage the process. Now, again, too much detail here to go to, get to, 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 to continue um, um, in depth. The first one up was an accident in some respect. The government didn't have direct control over the civil side of procurement at, at British European Airways, or BOAC for that matter, but it could influence their budget. There was pressure. Though in this sense, BEA were quite happy to buy a British product. They took their pound of flesh out of it, as many of you know. De Havilland bid successfully and put together a coalition involving hunting and ferry. The ministry, it should be said, was a little bit disappointed at the strength of this particular coalition and the strong evidence which I haven't yet been able to pin down that in fact they'd have preferred a coalition of Hawker, Sidley and Bristol which was in their view a much more solid proposition. But there was nothing they could do much about this. It was grudgingly accepted as a a step towards grouping. And after some shenanigans involving the then Ministry of Supply, um, Aubrey Jones, and his opposite number at Transport, the contract is signed and sealed. And de Havilland gets set on what became um, the Trident. Much more directly, of course, as we know, and I'm not going to go into this particular program in detail, that the Ministry of Defence and its order for OR339 what became TSR2 was much more open to direct, imple- direct manipulation and we all know how the MOD, MO, MOS maneuvered to ensure that Vickers and English Electric became the central core of the TSR2 program. Not, as we know, necessary relations between the two companies were easy on this program. But no more of that. There were also on to other programs. The supersonic transport came out of the industry working group as one area that would justify government support. Again, there was no great detail about that market or the rest of it, just an assumption, again looking at the seminar next week, that this was the next step and it would be the one that would enable the British aircraft industry to make a breakthrough. Who was going to build it? Well, too early to tell. But it was a strong, there was a strong, um, strong inference running through the late 50s that Bristol, by being awarded the research contract, would, in a sense, see this as a dowry to attract other participants, and Hawker Siddeley was up as the first potential partner. And indeed, there's strong evidence, isn't there, Kit, that there was a, 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 a initiated a, a Hawker sidley Bristol joint program during this period. More of them in a minute. Um, And um, coming in a bit later was something to encourage the helicopter industry to merge, uh, the BA's contract for a heavy lift. um, Would you call it a converted plane? How how would you describe Rotodyne? I've no idea. No. Anyway, fine. Good. Up and running. 58, up and running. And we get a statement in the House that we would intervene Showing some sort of balance between overt direction and total laissez-faire. That the government would encourage research and development, but the group, the group companies, the aircraft industry would increasingly, in some sense, continue, but take even more share of their own civil costs. Fine. As all things might have been equal. But unfortunately, They weren't equal. (coughs) All three of these programs, and significantly two of them were Vickers, were in deep trouble by the late 50s. Indeed, Vickers, in the summer of 1959, has to tell or confess to its shareholders that they were in danger of going out of business because of the rising costs and lack of commercial breakthrough on the part of the VC-10 <coughs> and the Vanguard. There is evidence in the Vickers' papers, by the way, that Vickers had severely underestimated the cost of building both Vanguard and VC-10, having got their modelling wrong on the basis of, Van- of, Vic- of Viscount experience. Bristol, of course, were virtually bankrupt trying to carry the costs of building the Britannia. It should be said that English Electric on the back and to some extent also Hawker Siddeley, on the back of surviving military contracts, were in rather better shape. But across the board, many of the British aircraft uh, major aircraft companies were in serious state. And there was a warning from um, Lord Knollys, who was the, the chairman of Vickers Aircraft at the time. Government had to appreciate and to ease the great and disproportionate financial burden borne by Vickers and other companies in private ventures. Without firm and early support by the government, this country is more likely, sooner rather than some people might expect, to find itself without a real aircraft industry at all. And all this, by the way, is clearly reflected in the Vickers archive. That Vickers particularly wanted to develop a new short-haul aeroplane, the VC-11. They had recognized that the the, the, the pure jet approach to commercial aircraft was the only thing that was probably going to keep them in the business. But getting it launched on the back of deep financial problems was not going to be easy. And they were clearly looking, therefore, to get some direct form of assistance from the Ministry of Supply, who was still, in a sense, directed by Aubrey Jones, a guy who had been fully committed to the hands-off Interve- non-interventionary approach, encouraging mergers to come along naturally. And he rejected Vickers' demands or requests for assistance. He made it quite clear that groups would have to coalesce before the government would consider further investment in the aircraft industry. So I'm going to conflate the actual time timescane. Because what I'm going to focus on now are the negotiations between Vickers, English Electric, and and de Havilland. Because while they start before October 1959, it doesn't really become, in a sense, a, 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 a strong and powerful urge until, until October 59, and Sands comes along with his new imperative. Vickers began to discuss a merger with de Havilland, as I say, in the summer of 1959. Partly because, clearly, they'd seen and been taken the hint to merge was going to be essential. But I think also, and you see where I'm a little, being perhaps a little bit more contentious, and one does see in a, in, a, in a private note from Sir George Edwards to the Vickers' board, to Lord Knowledge, that Vickers did see that this was an opportunity to take a leading role in civil aerospace development in the U.K., in part by capturing and commanding de Havilland. Now, that, I think, may be a little bit too strong. But evidently, going into a merger with de Havilland, holding the contract to develop BEA's short-haul aeroplane, DH-121 Trident, and on the back of that trying to launch the VC-11, which admittedly was a bigger aeroplane, but in a similar market slot, was likely to create difficulties. And indeed, ladies and gentlemen, the conflict between VC, VC-11 and DH-121 would be one of the linchpins in the merger negotiations and their eventual failure. Interestingly enough, in the first instance, English Electric were not part of the negotiations either, even though Vickers and English Electric were deeply engaged in developing the TSR-2 as a partnership with a view to future merger. Again, um, Vickers realised around about August, 19, ni- August 1959, that they couldn't carry on having private merger negotiations with de Havilland without bringing English Electric in. So it rapidly becomes a three-way process. But nothing much happens through the summer of 1959. And it's evident that they're all waiting the the, the outcome of the general election which was shortly called for October 19 October of that year. And this is when, of course, Duncan Sands is replaced by, sorry, uh, Aubrey Jones, is replaced by Duncan Sands. As I've implied earlier, Duncan Sands was a very different, category, different kettle of fish. He was much more inclined to play a role in this process, in, but emotionally and psychologically. And he also had much greater clout in the internal politics of the, the bureaucratic politics of the government. With close links to the Prime Minister um, Macmillan he won a remit to sort the industry out and that included a promise of advanced and enhanced aid for civil projects if and when the companies got their act together. Jones had always been able to sort of give some assurances that there would be uh, the prospect of aid and support, but Sands got a much firmer commitment, almost as a, almost as a, 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 a as a condition of taking up um, the new Ministry of Aviation, which had replaced Ministry of Supply at the, shortly after the um, election, and that was his condition. He also, as we will see in a moment, began to formulate not just the carrot of enhanced aid for civil programs, but also a stick to beat those in the industry who felt they could stay out of the emerging um, regrouping exercise. Namely, as we will see, the notion that all future government contracts would solely and unequivocally be directed to the grouped companies. the Marriage Bureau, always an interesting exercise, this, and it was literally that. He, 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 he called them all in, one by one. And he was quite blunt. He told Ma- um, Sir Matthew Slattery, who was then, um, th- uh, who was then chairman of, of Bristol, Are you, there's no chance that your company is going to be independent. You're broke. I- I'm paraphrasing, by the way. He wasn't quite as blunt as that. You're broke. And though your program to develop a supersonic transport is going along pretty well technically. You're going to have to find a partner, otherwise it's not going to be yours to build. He told Blackburn, it might be more advisable to enter into an association when they were occupied a position of strength. Namely, they had got one military contract, the NA39 Buccaneer, but they weren't going to get any others. Um, Rolls, of course, was much more confident. "We're, we're, We're not going to buy anything unless... There was a commercial need for it, but they were pretty confident they could survive the grouping. And already, it was self-evident that Rolls-Royce were going to be uh, one of the the survivors. The Hawker team, again, beginning to show that more ruthless approach to the whole exercise, were quite happy to to merge their own operations more carefully and closely, and they started to close factories, or plan to close factories within the Hawker group. You know, to get all that such strange loose coalition to act as a, a single entity. That was under their own direct control. They'd taken a look at Bristol, their partners, so-called, in the, in the supersonic development exercise. They weren't much impressed. There were some good people who might survive a merger, um, but Filton was looking very vulnerable. And if they really wanted to get civil expertise, they'd buy it from somewhere else. So, you know, Slattery was in a sense already <laughs> likely to face a very bleak, bleak, bleak future. But it was, also, when it came to de Havilland and English Electric and Vickers, Sandys immediately saw this as one of the core part of the merging exercise. And he then began to take a very close interest in the negotiations that were occurring between de Havilland, Vickers, and English Electric. And this is really where I, I want to focus on for the, for the next 10 or so minutes. Remember, we're not necessarily dealing with, 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 with similar, similar companies. English Electric and Vickers were part of bigger industrial com- groups. In- De Havilland, on the other hand, was primarily an aircraft company with engines and guided weapons as well, but it was primarily in the aircraft business. It didn't have much outside. Different type of company. It had one very good contract, the BEA, to develop the the Trident. It had been recovering from the Comet, but had got a sort of deal, rescue deal, with the British government. So it's coming out of that not too badly. Had some interesting work in guided weapons. English Electric and Vickers working very closely on TSR-2. Although it should be said, when English Electric became much more aware of Vickers' commercial problems, um, they did sort of tentatively suggest to the Ministry that they might possibly take control of that programme away from Vickers. But uh, Sandys rapidly told them, don't, don't, think, "Don't go down there." But it was, but interesting enough, both Vickers and English Electric and De Havilland recognised what a difficult position Vickers were in and why Vickers really wanted to move things on fast. Because if they didn't get support for the VC-11, and as it it also transpired, retrospective support for development of the VC-10, Vickers would be in very serious trouble indeed. So you do have, in a sense, conflicts of interest, conflicts of uh, of motive here. I mean, de Havilland, in a sense, were being told by the ministry they had to merge, and we'll see just how much pressure was being placed on Aubrey Jones, as the negotiator in a minute or two, Vickers really had to move fast. They wanted they wanted to seal the deal that had been promised by Sands, English Electric. Okay, going along for the ride to a point, but we're a little bit frightened that Vickers and English at, and De Havilland might do a deal, squeezing them out. But that was you know that was a bit of Wharton paranoia more than uh, well, at least not Wharton paranoia, but English Electric paranoia. Not much chance of that happening, whilst because. And English Electric would tie together as Siamese twins on the on the TSR two. But at least English Electric did have the comfortable cushion of production orders for Canberra and Lightning. So again, they weren't in too great a rush to seal a deal that if it was going to be tricky. And one of the tricky issues, as we would as we would guess, is what you're going to do with Vickers' losses. Now, anybody here who knows the story of BAC, that, that gets sold. But back in, the, in October 59, the prospect of being lumbered with the losses on Vanguard and VC-10 did have English Electric and de Havilland running for cover. <clears throat> and undoubtedly, de Havilland suspected Vickers' motives when they had the, 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 the background fingers of George Edwards trying to find ways of dominating civil aviation in Britain. And there was quite clear concern that the VC-11 in any merged company might just slowly take priority over the one two one. There were other embarrassments too. What do you do with Ferry and Hunting, who are part of the Echo consortium? What do we do with our overseas de Havilland subsidiaries? Are they involved? What's the position? <coughs> Where are we going with guided weapons? Well, English Electric, as you know, had some interest in guided weapons, but Vickers hadn't got a clue. About what to do with guided weapons, and there was also De Havilland's equipment sector, which which was then under the, under the, uh, traded under the name of De Havilland Propellers. All of which was quite profitable. It's evident from the from the various meetings that Sands had no doubt whatsoever. This was the crown. This was the jewel in the crown of the proposed regrouping. There's a mental picture, and it's come, it comes out of it's, it's implied rather than specified. But there are, in various bits of the papers, or notations and pencil marks on on lists of companies, that that he did have in mind, or at least his officials had in mind, uh, a, a, a loose co- a, a coalition based on Hawker, Siddeley and Bristol, the SST, coming out of the SST, um, forgetting or ignoring the fact that Hawker, Hawker's view of Bristol was entirely negative. Bagatelle detail. And that de Havilland Vickers and English Electric really did look like the balanced enterprise that would form a strong, I won't use the word champion company, that's no, you don't get that French concept in this narrative at all. But you can see it emerging, that was, that's the one to go for. And over the next few months, between October and November, well, next six weeks, so it's a compressed period, Sans Takes a direct role in the negotiations. We have invitations to country shoots, and Sands is invited up to the northwest and uh, and has a nice convivial weekend with the with the Nelson with the Nelson father and son, the guys that actually ran English Electric, as opposed to Caldercott who looked after the um, the aircraft industri- aircraft in- interests. There were strategy sessions between English Electric and. Vickers in Lord Knolly's flat, sometimes involving Jones in negotiations, but often as not as bilateral negotiation. Telephone conversations between Sands and the various parties, interestingly enough, all transcribed by a secretary sitting on an extension. Oh, it's all very interesting stuff. But it transpires in there that De Havilland and Aubrey Burke, they had misgivings about this exercise, more or less from the beginning partly because there was apprehension about being crushed between the big Vickers and the big English Electric. Not the aircraft industry bits of English Electric and Vickers, but the way in which any future company would just be hiving off the aircraft in- industry elements of English Electric and Vickers, but absorbing all of de Havilland with similar sorts of voting power. We're talking, you know, this is you know, boardroom, Arm wrestling stuff. Trying to anticipate how the new company governance would work. What about valuation? Particularly when you've got programs that are programs are are deep in the deep in the doo Some are doing all right. Some dependent upon government continuing government support. Others dependent upon future investment, like the TSR two. How do you value companies? How do you value assets? Interesting enough, by the way, when Sans is uh, 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 involved in some of, the, some of the negotiations, he says, what's the problem? What? What, I can't see a problem here. And he has to be gently reminded by Dennis Haviland, you know, his, his lead official, that indeed valuation is a, a little bit important when you're trying to set up company governance that would stick. You know, again, uh, Sands looking at the broad picture and not really um, having any interest whatsoever in the nitty gritty. Uh, He he wasn't too bothered about the VC-11 DH-121 issue either. Although it was evident, I suspect, to most people that there was something odd about trying to bid for support for the VC-11 and not give money to de Havilland for the 121. Uh, And that was one issue that was still unresolved when, 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 as you'll see, the talks collapsed. But more importantly, interestingly enough, English Electric as a neutral in this exercise clearly saw these programs as competitors. Uh, and, and in that sense, um, Burke for, 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 for de Havilland was seriously concerned about the future of his company and his assets or, 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 and his people in any merged company. As a consequence, as, this nego- as all these negotiations begin to unfold, De Havilland commissioned several independent assessments of their market position. Uh, And they're worth worth quoting at at, at some length. Because what we get here is a company that begins to say, no, I am going to, or we are going to resist this steamrolling exercise. Because I think, we think, we have a future outside of this. Merger process that's being hammered at us by English Electric and Vickers on the one hand and Duncan Sands and the Ministry of Aviation on the other. That they felt they had a marketplace out there for their product. And they quote De Havilland from an internal report. De Havilland has a wide diversified structure and capabilities in the UK and abroad. It is focused on aviation as are the best American companies and has an international sales organization. We consider that the strength of the de Havilland Group alone entitles us to be considered by the government as a unit capable of standing its own two feet. We, along with Hunting and fairy, were a group already. We have international reputation. We have programs that we can sell. We can stand apart. We can call Sandy's bluff. To cut a long story short, that is precisely what Burke does in November 1959. He tells English Electric and Vickers that they couldn't countenance a merger. Interestingly enough, English Electric was now, as they had been hinting for some time, that why not go for a hostile bid then? Although Vickers was reluctant to, to, to mount a, a, that kind of campaign. English Electric were all up and ready for, well, if, if, if it's really that good, we'll buy the buggers. Take them off the market, or we'll make them, we'll, we'll make them an offer that the shareholders can't refuse. But Burke and de Havilland were prepared to take the government on. They really felt that they had a future outside of the grouping. They also felt they had a moral case, interestingly enough. They felt that, they, that the government, the ministry, was not giving them full credit for the way in which they were developing the DH121, more or less on their money, and the back of a B.E.A. contract. They, in a sense, were miffed that the, the Sands and the ministry seemed to ignore the precepts that they had been, his government, his party, had been arguing for the better part of four years. That industry and company should stand on their own two feet and produce civil aircraft. Civil aircraft. So, in a sense, you could imagine the, the moral fervor of, of Burke and his team. That they felt they were being screwed by English Electric and Vickers, particularly by Vickers, and that they were being downtrodden by a government that, that indeed uh, encouraged them to stand on their own two feet. So, get you had, in a sense, sheer financial and industrial calculation as well as some moral, um, mor- m- you know, moral indignation. Okay. Long story short, D. Havlin, we can't count. I can't recommend a merger between Vickers and English Electric to our shareholders under. Certainly when we can't get valuation, when we've got no idea about the structure of the future company, and certainly when we think the assets that we have got are severely undervalued by both your companies and by the ministry. Right. Oh, we will have one final negotiation with Duncan Sands. And he brings them all into his office in Shermeck's in, in house. Lord Nollies, Lord Caldecott, Sir Aubrey Burke, and no doubt a couple of officials. Burke explains how he's come to this conclusion, how de Havilland, he thinks, can stand on its own two feet. Well, I suspect, looking at the records now, because we have, we have the, we have the, this meeting is covered by four sets of, four sets of, four sets of minutes. And I will try and, I'll try and do a word picture of this. Effectively, Sans browbe, he monsters Aubrey Burke. He tells them in no uncertain words, That if you don't go on with this merger, there will be no orders for de Havilland. He's quite blunt about this. There will be, standing outside this grouping will be very cold for your company. I do paraphrase a little bit, but I'm trying to get across what I think was the, is the temper, the tenor of this meeting. That there is virtually no chance of you successfully standing alone. Now, Actually, Nollis and Knollys and, uh, and 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 Coldico, uh, uh, looking at the records, are aghast. I mean, this is amazing. There's this outburst on the minister, because they are there, contemplating a hostile bid, Two private comp, contemplating a hostile bid for the third, and they're being told by told by the minister, it could be yours for the grabbing because this company's got no future. And if the government went public on this, share price at de Havilland would would plummet like a stone. And they could not nibble it away. Now, there is a very interesting footnote to this, because in the official minutes, none of this is to be found. The Ministry of Supply just makes a a bland reference to the, 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 the disappointment that the minister expresses over de Havilland's decision to pull out of the merger negotiations. And sure, and there's a reference to this because because Vickers and Vickers and English Electric, of course, see the see a, a draft minute of the meeting, and they said this isn't this isn't, there is no sign of this monstering in the meeting in the minutes. They they themselves note, and it isn't. Yeah, it's it's bland and it's great. It's clear. Because then, what Sands goes on to say afterwards, at the end of this, because Nollis leaves, leaving Caldicott and um, uh, 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 and Nollis in his office, he says, well, that was a bit rough, I know. And I don't think we can really let de Havilland go to the war quite as bluntly as that. Uh, An interesting footnote, by the way, when you think about the treatment later meted meted out to, to Hanley Page, that they were perhaps a bit too important to go to the war. Uh, as effectively, so what are we going to do now? Well, what are we going to do now? Well, Vickers and English Electric go off and think about mounting a hostile bid, but then it gets messy. Because, in a sense, how can you mount a hostile bid for companies whose valuations are a bit doubtful on the basis of a government's an English Electric Vickers merger for which is no obvious structure? You know, it's like a, a, a phantom bidding for a Com- you know, com- you know, so you can't you can't sell that to the city. You couldn't sell that to shareholders. So the idea of a hostile takeover bit does, does peter out. But Sands doesn't give up. He looks for ways of putting pressure on De Havilland to get back into bed with Vickers and English Electric. Let me find the quote. There is, in the archive at Q, a specific memo. I think it's, on, I think it's from, from Havilland. It's difficult to tell from, the, from, from, the, from all the abbreviations. When the minister, and I quote specifically, is asking for ways of putting pressure, or ways that pressure might be delivered to de Havilland. And there were several approaches, or several prospects. This included telling the company that research contracts for engine. Would cease. One thought, or even though uh, the MO, Moa already knew that De Havilland engines would probably have to find some way of working with Rolls anyway. But there's this well, okay, we can undermine their share price by cutting off support for role, for, for for De Havilland engines. Such an abrupt announcement, a quote, might have, quote, a disproportionately great psycholo- psychological effect on the aircraft and guided weapons negotiations, undermined de Havilland's case for mergers elsewhere. Oh, what a what a good plot. How about telling the world that the RAF would have the VC-10 rather than the Comet as its next transport? Uh, in fact, the, it was already known within the ministry that the RAF wanted the VC-10 and didn't want any more comets. But the rest of the world didn't know that. And there was a prospect that, again, De Havilland's position could be undermined by implying that they lost this contract with the RAF. Even better, start fiddling or start putting pressure on the comet levy. Now, again, I don't want to get into this, De Havilland were, as you know, bailed out by the British by the gov- British government on its comet, and part of the exercise was that they had to pay a levy on subsequent deliveries. De Havilland had scratched their heads and thought they didn't have to come up with the 43 million quid. I, uh, by the way, I, I, in my papers, uh, published papers, I, have, I don't, I think I've got the deflators wrong, but he, a big chunk of money that De Havilland still owed the government, and I quote. They hope we will be afraid to face... That's we as the ministry. They hope we will be afraid to face the legal situation. We should deny this and demand immediate payment and let them sue us. This would publicize their attempt at sharp practice. By bringing into question an immediate liability to pay us nearly 44 million, our action would reduce the company's confidence in its ability to ride out a financial storm. This is pressure, ladies and gentlemen. Now, in the event, little of this is actually applied, as we'll see, um, the Havilland go in a different direction when they're, in a sense, left there floating out in, the, in, 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 in no man's land. But it's an indication of just how dirty Duncan Sounds and his officials were and would have been prepared to have played the game. Um, one of the... Uh, uh, Lord uh, who was, who was, I think... Uh, a political advisor, or at least an informal political advisor to de Havilland, wrote a, later wrote to the company secretary, commiserating with their last and evidently bruising encounter with the minister, and he writes the minister certainly seems to have given you a rough time I'm afraid Vickers has got certain political advantages So, English Electric and Vickers go back to a, 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 or at least now move into, the, into a bilateral negotiation, which actually in a sense, as we all know, leads to the core BAC. They sort out a deal whereby um, the old business stuff, the costs of VC10 and Vanguard get shoveled off onto the Vickers account and all new programs, TSR2 primarily, it, are put under the BAC account. That, that's, this is a familiar story and, and well told, well told by, by Gardner. The rest of the story, in a sense, is also mopping up loose ends. De you have them sitting there, scratching their heads about what to do? It is now very evident that they are going to be, or they fear that they are going to be abandoned by the government. Enough of, this, enough of this implied pressure is getting through to them. And certainly, certainly, I think Shawcross had probably no evidence of this, but I'm sure Shawcross had made it very clear um, to um, the de Havilland board that they could be in danger of losing everything. So in a sense, they were in a sense very vulnerable now um, to an offer that they would not be able to refuse. Hawker in the sense that the silent partner in all this activity, or he's the silent player in all this activity, had again been looking at what they had available. Bristol ran away from them. They leapt into the prospect of merging with um, with, with, with Vickers and English Electric on unreasonable terms. They got the same deal um, in the merge company as the, as the, as the other two players. Because I think they too had looked at Hawker Sidley and run away from them very rapidly. So Hawker Sidley were left with de Havilland, and, as we'll see in a moment, Hanley Page. And I think Burke sees as no alternative and accepts the, the offer that came from Hawkers very rapidly in December 59. So I think, here we have Christmas time. Everybody gets a present. Well, a few don't. Sounds can go to Cabinet um, in, January 19, in January 1916 before the Prime Minister jets off on his holidays. It's that urgent. And he effectively sells the scheme that the British government would start supporting or re-establish support for commercial aircraft based on what would become known as launch aid, risk-sharing investment in commercial programs that would seem to have a commercial prospect of success. Incidentally, there would be bitter negotiations in a f- in, over a few short days about the terms under which launch aid was to be paid. Um, the companies wanted all of their money back before government. Government, I suspect, rightly, wanted to have their money back before the companies got theirs. And, uh, the, and, the, and the firms moaned like billio over this problem. They also moaned about the rate of return which they regard as being usurious. Oh, but again, over the barrel chaps. There was a few, there were a few, um, improvements made to the terms and inflation, which would, which was ignored in the first, in the first cast of launch investment was brought into the, brought into the, um, uh, uh, arrangements. So, we do get a scheme whereby British government starts supporting civil programs. Sands also makes it clear that there would be a penalty for those that stayed out. Only the grouping companies would get orders. And I think that was the sum total of the exercise. And in a sense, I think we all know, by and large, what happens next. Hanley Page is a clear victim. Rather later in the day, we find that one or two of the hidden costs of the regrouping exercise also hits the British taxpayer namely the effect that it would have. And I've not mentioned this in detail because I haven't really researched it in, in archive form yet. And there was also an interesting embarrassment. First, the victim. Now, again, I don't think I've got too much time left in my talk. But Hanley Page stays outside the grouping. Hawkers make a bit. But Frederick Hanley Page has a view of his company and its worth which is resistant to the blandishments of Hawker. Made worse by the fact that halfway through the campaign to buy Handley Page, it becomes known, at least internally, that the RAF order for victors is to be cut in half. And uh, naturally enough, Hawkers half their bid. And of course, Fred, uh, Sir, 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 Sir Frederick says, no. My company is worth more of this. Well, whereupon It is evident that his bid for launch investment for further developments of the Herald are sat on. Payments for proving uh, Heralds that were being built for BEA are delayed. It's, it's in a sense, quite messy. And it's sure enough that within a a matter of months, sometime after Sansa, in a sense, leaves um, the ministry, Hanley Page is twisting in the wind. It would, of course, be a, a long time in the dying, and sadly, Sir Frederick would himself die halfway through um, this early the, uh, uh, in April, uh, April 61, April 62, and taking some of the pressure off government because they were getting embarrassed over Hanley Page, it should be said. And there are interesting letters between the ministry and, and Hanley Page saying how much they felt their come, recognizing just how much. Hanley Page had given to the country, and pl- almost pleading with uh, with Hanley Page to get into bed with Hawker Sidley. Another victim, and I couldn't resist having this one, we haven't had any violence in this story, but a bit of sex wouldn't come amiss. In my book um, on, on, on British Civil Aircraft, it, uh, I, I do recount the way in which BOEC is pressured to take... Or to restructure its order for VC-10s, and then to take on a, a further development of the, the VC-10, the Super VC-10. It's an aeroplane that the BOAC technical people are uncertain of. And certain is that there is uh, even in the bits of bits of the internal internal um, evidence I've seen um, some indication that it was known pu- known within the ministry that BOAC were not happy commercially with with, with the aeroplane that they were being offered. But there is enough evidence from the, the later near bankruptcy of BOAC in 1963-64, that pressure had been applied on the airline. And by the time we get round to this commercial failure, which incidentally, it was then the largest public loss of a nationalized enterprise, nationalized company in British history. And it cost Matthew Slattery another job, as well as the chairman, uh, as well as the chairman Sir Basil Smallpiece. So in a sense, not just Hanley Page suffered, but also A significant chunk of of BOEC's reputation as a well-run company. The embarrassment? Shorts. A survivor. Why? When everything else got either eaten up, gobbled up, or left left out to dry. Well, paradoxically, it's left out of all this exercise because it's already mainly owned by the British government. Bristol had bought a small share in, I think it was 20%, I could look it up. It's about 20% of this company in 19, in 19, in 1958. But it was in dire straits by late, in, by the late 1950s. But, and again, looking in the evidence, we see quite confirmed that the Northern Ireland factor was the determining reason why the government was going to make sure this company survived. Plenty of exchange here involving the, um, the involving the, Um, the Ministry of Aviation, and um, we we call it the Northern Ireland office these days, but of course in those days it was the Northern Ireland government. Now, uh, pushing Shorts into either Hawker Siddeley Group or BAC might have been an answer, but here's the embarrassment. What do we do with the government shareholding? And certainly no one is going to buy it because Shorts is effectively a bankrupt company and they okay, couldn't give it to ones because if you put it into bac and we were therefore and british government was therefore owning a bit of bac what would hawkes sydney group do they would complain there would be political complications so there's a huge collective scratching of their head <sighs> big size. and literally it was a question of mr macorba as far as shorts were concerned something might turn and there was just a glimmer of hope. There was a, an emerging program for a little light freighter. And there was an interesting idea for a guided weapon program. Well, as we know, Shorts would actually recover reasonably well on the back of uh, uh, of Seacat and the, the Sherpa. But back in 61, Shorts was going to be a conundrum and an embarrassment. So, 61, um, Hanley Page is on its, you know, it's on its, on, it's Calvary. Long road to, to final extinction. <coughs> the engine companies, you know, we get all the all the bits that Rolls didn't want are assembled into um, Bristol Sidley. I think that's a bit of a, that may have been ins- a bit of an insult to Bristol Sidley. So I'm sorry about that. <coughs> the helicopter group, the, all the helicopter bits of the various companies get get gobbled up by Westland. A, a, a reasonable a reasonable solution, uh, at least in the short term. Unfinished business. Well, it didn't solve in the end the, the, the fundamental economics of the British aircraft industry. And two company structures into the 1960s, and 1970s were problematic. Of course, Roll solves its problem by buying Bristol Siddeley uh, in 1966. So that one, that, that bit of unfinished business is, is rapidly um, rolled up. But what might have been, and this is where I'm, I am going to stop and let you guys have, have your chance. What might have been? Where would we have been in 1961 if de Havilland, Vickers and English Electric had been together? 61 uh, is an interesting date because that is also the time the Light Commission um, submits its report on future ultra-high capacity short-haul aeroplanes. What would become the Airbus? Would we have had a major British civil airframe champion? that could have gone on its own, as BAC later would try to do so with the 2.11 and 3.11. Would we have had a substantive champion in the collaborative negotiations with the French uh, and an airframe interest that might just have been able to hold its its own with Rolls-Royce, whose interests, I contend, shape much of our negotiations over commercial aircraft through the 1960s. So that's my hypothetical question, ladies and gentlemen. And with that, I will open the floor to questions.
0: Thank you very much, Keith, for a most provocative and interesting talk. Um, We have microphones. Uh, Question at the front. Peter, um that
2: was delightful, Keith uh, John King. I'm um, uh, very. You're no doubt
1: very pleased that you were able to get access to so many primary sources. Yeah. Um, could you tell us something as to what happened to these sources? Are they still in the public? Are they, are they now yes, I, available I mean, in the public domain? Oh, indeed. Um, or oh, by the way, uh, if it, I mean, I've, I've, I've skimmed and and gone and paraphrased and all sorts of. And many of you know that I, my the, the, the this is is on the on the. The website for, 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 consultation and indeed please comment. I, 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 it's work in progress. But, back. yeah. Q. As, as, well, we, I think anybody, anybody who does it work, I we know, I know full well just what a wonder, what a wonderful and well organized bunch of, bunch of, uh, 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 records they are. But there's always something you can dig up and I, you know, I, I had no idea about this at the aircraft, the, the aircraft, in the aircraft, um, industry working group. It's, in, I still haven't explored all of that. I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't looked at the Treasury papers yet because the, the Treasury were, I looked at, I've looked at the Ministry of Supply papers but I haven't looked at the Treasury and it's the Treasury of course running that and I suspect they may well have some even more interesting things to say about the aircraft industry. The Caldecott papers are at the Imec, at the electricals. Now um, the Caldecott papers um, again cover a lot of English electric work m- much of it relating to the Yorkshire plant, the electrical stuff, guided weapons, I suspect, um, the, the big chunk of Wharton papers, which, I, which are a mess, but are being are at least been preserved by the, the Heritage Centre there. Um, and the Caldicott papers are transcripts of, these, of this six months of negotiation. The Vickers papers are extraordinarily well preserved. Uh, again, I, I was talking to Andrew from, from Science Museum, and he tells me that, this again was a, a, this is a tribute to the company secretary in the 1960s, who really sem- and, and it, it's, it's superb. Although I did find uh, references to tanks, a brochure about tank design, and uh, something about, something about Zadonov's pension in the, in the Vickers, in the Vickers aircraft file. Zadonoff, of course, was the original merchant of death for Vickers Armstrong. So I, I was able to Give those back to the archivist and say, perhaps you better refile those. Great stuff. The de Havilland papers, I came almost by accident, because, um, Peter Elliott at RAF Museum Hendon said, oh, I've got, we've got some stuff relating to, to de Havilland about this, or Hawker, about this bid, and most of it is, most of it is about aeroplanes. But in the middle of it are the Albre- the records of Aubrey Burke's negotiation with Nollis and Caldecott and Sands. So you know, that's where I get the four. What I'm missing, uh, is, as you can gather, are the Hawke- is the, is the board-level Hawker Sidley, And I think there might be some of that at Wharton, which has got caught. It might be out at, um, uh, 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 amongst the old British Aerospace Papers at, uh, at Farnborough. So it's all there. See, some of it is. Um, the rest of it, I'm sort of, you know, we will, we will see. Um, i 've no idea i mean, Westland might have some, but i 'm not going to because i think actually the helicopter bit is probably straightforward you know there it was all the bits left over, and there were you know, oh, Westland seemed to be the right people for those um rolls the rolls of course have i, I, I haven 't bothered to go to, down the engines yet no, i I might be tempted but it 's the airframe negotiations which by and large are the, are, the, are the really politically you know juicy bits so I, I, there's more work yeah but it's all it 's all available. Ah, hi He's going to give me a what might have been.
2: Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's
3: an academic question. You've already, in a sense, addressed it. Yeah. And the question is, how come um, the government and the companies didn't think along the more rational French way of specialization? You know, the Sud Aviation, aerospace, civil civil aircraft, that's so military, and the you know, the consequence that that implies in terms of the loss of leadership in the civil aircraft industry in the, by the UK. To
2: it's refrain. not the British way, Grant. It's not the.
1: Way, not the yeah. We don't do that <laughs> I know, sort right, of thing. We uh, just I said don't, don't do that sort of thing. You know, <laughs> We've, we set the conditions, we give them carrots, we give them a boot up the backside, but we're not going to tell private companies how to organize their affairs. Uh-huh. That's terribly French. <laughs>
3: But still, the, the rationale would have been, as it, as you said rightly, the Avalon, Weybridge, yeah. Hatfield would have been a colossus uh, on a sort of uh, uh, broad so, side yeah. in, in terms of civil aircraft. And then when it came to the negotiations, as you know, the way they always yeah. went with the French taking the cherry and the rest.
1: Uh, I, I think the an- the answer is, in a sense, in, broad, in, the, in the broader tapestry of British industrial policy uh, and the way in which the Conservative government... and uh, and to an extent, also um, subsequent Labour governments would shy away from indicative planning. Um, that, uh, and certainly, y- y- if you look at the way in which, you know, um, you know, it's, it's a long time since I've looked at um, a, a pattern of British industri- British industry policy, but it's quite evident that the, the, the Conservative Party in the 1950s was, was still trying to get out of industry, reflecting the the nationalisation the nationalisation exercises of utilities and, and and transport in the 40s. Uh, and the way in which the Labour government in the aircraft industry, through the Brabazon program and, and direct intervention, had only, you know, come up with some, you know, one or two successes. But broadly speaking, I think, in retrospect, the Brabazon program of direct intervention failed. And I think the, the, the Tories were ideologically not inclined to get into that kind of indicative planning. Uh, and, and I'm not even sure. Well, you, I mean, I think you can. I think you, you. We all. I think we're all aware also of some of the impediments to merging in, in Britain. Were the fact you did de- we were dealing with strong individuals. I mean, you've got Sir Fred, rightly or wrongly, felt that his company was worth a lot more than Hawkers were prepared to buy, bid for it. And what would happen to my asset, my history, if I merge with these guys from 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 from, from Kingston? And you and you the struggle too. You, you, I mean, Kit, I mean, I've I've given a talk on Freddie Page. The, the difficulty with with the way in which the 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 English Electric team were trying to bed down with Vickers and the the the, the recriminations that were going on over, over English Electric's apparent failure to uh, to Vickers's uh, apparent superiority over a military program. All of this was was deeply personally felt. Uh, and I, I, I was trying to convey that also the the interaction within De Havilland. Is, there's actually a lobby inside de Havilland, and it's, it, you can see the company secretary, minutes from the company secretary, pushing the idea that de Havilland does have a future on its own. We don't have to get in with these, you know, these Weybridge, evil Weybridge people. We don't trust Edwards. You know, gentleman's agreement to separate VC7, VC, VC, VC11 and DH. What gentlemen's agreement? And to that English electric call the bluff, by the way, and there is, you know, boom. No, 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 no agreement whatsoever. Again, was it, was it, was it, um, um, um old, um, mayor said, you know, this verbal agreement isn't worth the paper it's printed on. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm in a rant here, but I think that's, that, that, that underlines the, the rationale here. That you didn't have technocrats running the British aircraft industry. You didn't have quasi-civil servants from the Ecole Polytechnique. Or, you know, oh, monsieur, monsieur le ministre, we'll, we will go. Or one dominant character, uh, uh, um, Charles Dassault, who could sort of nudge his way into, into dominating the military sector. No, it's, you know, it's it's a mixture of the way we do things, the political environment, and the personalities.
4: Yeah. Um, isn't isn't it, the, isn't it the case that there were no powers for British government to plan in the way that was described? Yeah. And isn't that one thing, that the contracts were the only... Leave it, they had. Mm. Um, the other thing, you, t- you implied that de Havilland was in merger talks before this conversation with three, Sands. this four-way conversation. I mean, the other thing I was going to say was that, in fact, I mean, Sands went much further than, than form, I think you're saying that, than form or president would yeah. normally have allowed. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Um, they were in negotiation, so was it all just about price, or was it about principle?
1: No, there, was, there were principles involved. I mean, it, it starts to get messy. Um, it, 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 there are two phases to the negotiations. The ones that vicars initiate um, in round about it's, fo- it, it's, it's following the AGM, effectively, when vicars come clean about the depth of their, their difficulties. They then sort of, mm, what, what do we do? And there, is, there are some interesting, there are some interesting um, papers in the vicars' archive saying, what can we do? And, and George Edwards is actually, you know, we could conspire with Rolls-Royce. There's an interesting thought not i use, i i i use the word advisedly he's talking about coming together with rowell to 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 work on um a dominant position in commercial aviation and as you know they can say we can thin we can thin this our way into um perhaps outmanoeuvring de but even better if we sort of you know was was the phrase m- merge and absorb okay and and I just, you know although the, the the the, the the life cycle of the one two one and the VC the VC eleven was were, were quite distinct. One can imagine that at some stage that the that the you know that the might have might have done to De Havilland what they did to did to English Electric was going to just just suck um suck the suck the one two one. Um, then I it gets then it starts to get into can the, the nitty gritty of valuations. I mean, There's another question.
4: Yeah. Um, Dennis Havilland is involved in these discussions. Oh. Um, isn't it the case that he was also trying to run an, a rationalization program in the early 50s, in about yes. 1953? Yeah. yeah, So was it that he didn't have ministerial support at that time?
1: Yes, it, 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 very good point, Andrew. I, I mean, um, it, 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 I did actually talk to Dennis. I mean, in my one of the few things I could do in my earlier book is actually talk to some of the protagonists. And I talked to Dennis, and he, he was pretty well, pretty well forthcoming, although, you know, like any civil servant in those days, he was, you know, he's not going to give you nuggets of truth but yeah um and I, I i found enough in the in the public record to show that they were considering a rationalization in 1952 52 53 when some of the problems that i sketched on were beginning to emerge and th- there's a, enough evidence to suggest that Maudling, who was minister of supply in 56 said, no, we're not, we're not, we're not doing anything. We'll let the market take its... It take, we'll let we'll market forces drive things. We won't manipulate. We'll just let the market drive forward. And, you know, it total hands-off.
4: It's all very muddled, of course, because the government was the market, as you point out, yeah. to, to, to a great extent. Yeah. I, I think the last thing, I won't monopolise a lot more, but you, you mentioned the BOAC. Yeah. I, I haven't looked at those, the, those papers, but it seemed to me... The penalty of buying British aircraft was always exaggerated by the airlines because they used it as a lever to get subsidy. So it's very hard for us as historians to find out what what the truth is Uh, and how bad they were or how uncompetitive Uh, they were. I'm looking for the smoking gun, Andrew. Was the VC-10 much less economic than a Boeing 707?
1: I doubt if it was, actually. um don't know. I mean, it, it, was, design, it was designed for, for, for a different set of uh, parameters. It, as you know, it's, It was the, the original VC-10 was designed for the hot and high routes, um, and its probably seat mile costs were not as good as the, the early 707s. But I suspect the super VC-10 was rather better, but it was a bigger aeroplane. It's a fantastic aeroplane. But the other thing, of course, that they did was to fatally compromise
4: the sailability of British aircraft by... Oh, asking, or being known that they were asking
1: for the subsidy. Oh yeah, absolutely. Or tailoring the designs. I mean, who else wanted a hot and high aeroplane, particularly when the Americans built long runways under military assistance programs? Uh, and, and we all know the sad story of the Trident being got you know chicken out of, of, of the big of the big Medway powered aeroplane. Um, but the, the VC, I, I've got to do more work on this because um, as you, as as, as anybody who studied this know, there was a Though the public record was not then available, the the, the crisis at BOAC forced uh, parliamentary inquiries, and small piece and go, uh, small piece and Slattery really do give some heartfelt heartfelt um, evidence to the select committee. Inter- and actually, there's, there's an interesting juxtaposition. They are, they're actually called, to, they're, they're called before a select committee. Um, I think six months before the crisis becomes known, and it's much more. Oh man everything's all right, under control. Then you get them sacked, and they give evidence, and it's, wow, it's all son's fault. You know, we had our hands tied on the on, on this program. I think probably, Andrew, they were they were asked to buy too many. Whether the aeroplane itself was good or bad for their roots, uh, and the fact they did do very well, um, you know, Marlena uh, 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 notwithstanding, they did very well in in service. I think they, and they, they, there was too many of them. I think they were, I think they were asked to buy 50. If I remember rightly. So, a huge uplift, anticipating capacity. And it was that that helped to precipitate the financial crisis at BOAC. But I need to do more work. Um, I can only say, I did have, before I got involved in this, sometimes when you sit in the library upstairs, you do get lucky. And there was a chap, an old chap, who had been in the Ministry of Aviation at that time? And I said, "Oh, what was the truth then of the of, of, of the of the pressure put on Delange? Who was um, Slattery's? Uh, and he uh, oh, wasn't. He was he was small pieces um, breezy setter. Oh yeah, the 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 elbow, you know, the, the arm was twisted very severely. But I suspect there won't be. You know, if if I can find a lovely letter, you know, please do that." Uh, I'd love to find it, but I, I, I suspect it's, it's a bit more um, British approach. It would be terribly useful, um, Sir Gerald, if you could go out of your way and restructure the order with Vicar. It would be a great deal of help and assistance to us, you know, in the restructuring of the industry.
2: <laughs>
1: Not yet. Not yet. Uh, it's one of those, uh, it, there's too much to do. There is a chunk of file... On uh, in, the, in, in the in the in the queue, labelled VC10. So we we the mysteries that we might find some would Probably it probably be giving you know a whole bunch of pictures of Marley in a deer trick, and I and I've, I've, there's, there's some very odd things in those files.
4: <laughs> yeah, I I,
1: I I I could have to see my my my, my, my namesake. Yes, yes, the other Keith Hayward. Uh, and try and try and get hold of the uh, hold, hold of that sign. It may well. Be, it may actually it may well be that's my ne- next year's hobby to look at look at look at <laughs> look at BOEC's crisis. I'm
5: a bit amazed at what you've actually I'll omitted today. If you look at the VC7, yeah, and the way that was manipulated out, it was an aircraft which was cost effective, it was the best in the world, superior to the American Boeing 707. It could use most runways in the world, whereas the Boeing and the American jets had to have every runway bar two rebuilt and lengthened. You haven't mentioned the fact that uh, when Sandys destroyed certain projects, they had the potential to make a lot of money for this country, and we were making money up until, I mean, when Matt Millen said we never had it so good. Yeah. It was partially on the back of the aerospace industry. The
1: yeah. uh, answer to that is, 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 all, is all due respect, but um, it's hypothetical. We don't know whether the V1000, the I, I, I remember it's the V1000, yeah, yeah, yeah. would, would, would have been superior to, the, superior to the 707. It might have appeared earlier than the 707. I don't know. We don't know. It could be. I, the, we're, dealing with, we're dealing with hypotheticals. Um, I tend to deal with, in a sense, things that things that were there. I don't. I mean, I I, I make interesting speculation about the about the the big consortium in, in the 1960s, but I, I I do agree with you that the, the the watershed with the V1000 was, I think, quite important. And again, interestingly enough, it it it's, it, it underlines that the the hesitation and the diffidence with which the government was coming to terms with the aircraft industry in the 1950s. It, sorry, Andrew. He pro- Andrew probably I, has I, not done the program
4: I have also. studied it in some detail, actually, at, at the level of, of uh, Ministry of Supply papers. Um, it was always portrayed by Edwards as, as the, you know, the, the fatal missed opportunity. But actually the performance of the aircraft could have been, was predict, predicted quite well because, as you know, it was based on the bomber wing. So there were no surprises to come, um, and it was clear that it wasn't going to be competitive with the 707. In fact, the 707 had flown as a prototype while the V-1000 was still half-built. So Not true. But, what? Not true. It is true. The,
5: the 707 the, the, didn't fly until afterwards.
4: The, 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 narrow bod- like? the narrow-bodied aircraft derived from the tanker that had flown before, and, and the V-1000 wasn't complete. And, and Edwards went on record and said, that it was only flying in, in, in uh, certainly it was only flying in, in, a, in an incomplete form, and it wasn't really representative of the real buff But they it's run ahead while Vickers had really dragged. Well, are you a Vickers person? No, I'm not. No. I,
5: I, I'm just uh, as a young man or a young schoolboy, I was fascinated by the what was happening to the industry, and I, I remember the cancellation.
4: Well, I'll tell you one thing. You could look at the wing sweep of the 707 and the V1000, and it's quite evident from that alone that it was about 100 miles an hour slower. So it was not really a competitor at all. The only the advantage over long had, ranges. The only advantage you would have had, it would have been if it had been into service quicker, which it could have been if because it had been Boeing. And that was the fatal flaw. Was that the programme was too slow, and they demanded to be paid for every step of research. That was the way the industry progressed do a bit, ask for money, do a bit more, ask for more money. It wasn't... I don't want to to
1: intervene in this private debate, but but for what it's worth, I think the big mistake was was for the British government to insist on its pound of flesh from from bailing out de Havilland. That they insisted on de Havilland focusing on delivering um, the military transport version and not getting on with, as de Havilland wanted, um, um, the, the bigger and clearly... Improved version of, of the comet. What, will, what in effect became the Comet Four, and that that got I think De Havilland in, into hock with the government, because again they they were between a rock and a hard place because they, this is the only way we're going to bail you out if you deliver um, what became the Comet Twos to to, to transport command. I, I for my personal opinion that was the big error. Not re- not not trying to support De Havilland into. Um, the race with the seven hundred and seven DC eight. I think that would have been that was the turning point. Not the hypothetical VC uh, VC seven. With all due respect.
5: Well, it's ninety percent complete, wasn't it?
1: Don't know. I don't know. I don't. I, don't, I, I must. Admit, I don't. like, My weakness is I, I. I don't tend to follow aeroplane aeroplanes. There's
5: one one further point. Um, you say about planning. Certainly, Matt Millen from the late fifties was planning Britain's entry into the EU yeah. and. Making sure that, uh, I mean, I was in a, as a student, I was in a hostel for civil servants in 1965, yeah. and I came across some young men who were, or one young man in particular, yeah. who was put on, he was on a committee, and he was elated because as a junior, it would have been his job yeah. to have uh, done the official minutes, yeah. and there were no official minutes. Yeah. And what they were doing was working on breaking up the United Kingdom. (coughs) This is 65. When I said this was to do to Wilson, he said, oh no. He said, the old is. He says, most of them are over 25. You can imagine how young we were at the time. Said that it started at least under Macmillan. So from Macmillan's time onwards, obviously the ministry was prepping and getting ready for Britain's... Absorption into the EU, and it must have been the same in other areas. And I, would suggest
1: I,
2: I, the I same don't think aviation.
1: There's, there's no evidence, there's no evidence of that, that was occurring I, I, in aviation. There were, there were, I mean, again, I say next week, um, there was some indication that, um, that the support for the civil service civil program was, was moving towards a collaborative phase. Simply, i recognize on even then, estimate of costs, costs were putting in outside of the. Um, a, a, a safe, a safe single national approach. But there is indeed, oh, and I, perhaps I think one of the things I've underestimated in my little in my presentation is the rhetorical commitment of the Macmillan government to the British aircraft industry. That I referred, I mentioned, I mentioned the the, the, the cabinet um, meeting of uh, 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 of late 59, early 60, when when Sands sells the launch investment exercise to to his colleagues the memos are such, the memos attached to that show a, a genuine commitment to trying to rebuild and to maintain a, a, a world class aerospace industry uh, the tragedy is in my opinion is that the mechanism they chose to use was flawed the sentiments i think were very sound it had to be on a, it had to be put on a more rational basis you know i'm not i don't Agreed. In any stretch of the imagination, with the, with the Derek Wood project cancelled view of this of this period, I mean, there was just too much rubbish being 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 proposed that we, we could never have sustained that any half of the programmes. But we could have had a better industrial structure to sustain our industry, particularly the airframe sector, into the nineteen sixties and the subsequent problems that it faced then. That, would, that was, I think, the biggest tragedy. That the the, the the emphasis, the, the commitment, was there. The mechanism and the approach was deeply flawed.
0: If I could come in, um, I don't know if there's any Vickers people here who were involved with the V 1000 but um, in '56 I was, did six months in the Weybridge Works pre-university, and the fitter I was working with took me over to Wisley one day where the fuselage, at least, of the V 1000 was at the back of the shed and was pretty well complete. Um, I don't remember seeing the wings, um, but I assume they were built and were sto- stored somewhere else. But when I was back at Vickers in 61 to 64, I remember one or two of the design staff talking about the V1000, and I have absolutely no evidence that these stories are correct, which is why if there's anyone from Vickers, I'd love to know the truth. The story I got from them was that, actually, there was some relief when it was cancelled, because Vickers had put the second t- design team on the V1000, the first team was on the Vanguard, and there were a number of detailed design features which were thought to be actually quite embarrassing and would have made it a difficult airplane to operate. Um, one in particular, um it had buried engines in the wing roots, and they couldn't get the bending moment across the engine bay on the spars, so they actually had load-carrying beams going across the doors under the engines, which had to be got out if you had to change an engine, um, which would have made engine changes very slow and expensive and there are a number of other features like that. Now, I've no idea whether these stories are true, and I'd love to know the truth, but uh, it does ring a bit of a bell. Um, uh, The other thing is, if there had been a merger between Vickers and de Havilland's, I've always... I didn't work for de Havilland's, but I've always had a feeling that the design philosophies were actually quite a bit different, and how they would have fitted together, I really don't know. And again, if there's anyone from de Havillands or Vickers who could comment on that.
1: It, my, ge- my guess, kid, it would be a rerun of the, of, of the struggle between Wharton and Weybridge. I think it would have been, been arm-wrestling of considerable proportions. And uh, um, Again, I, this is why, in a sense, it, it may well have been a, a totally false hypothesis that trying to weld um, Hatfield and Weybridge on the civil side might have, again, left us in much the same position as we were um, in any case in the mid-60s, without an effective airframe champion, civil airframe champion. So,
2: um, very nice.
1: it's, a, it's a valid point, though, Kit. I, you know, you, you, I think one of the things that we... I'm not, not at as skill, but the sociology of, of the mergers would also be a very fascinating study.
4: Uh, Professor Hayward, um, I was look, very much look forward to this.
2: Uh, but as an ex-Hawker uh, Sidley man, I feel somewhat left out of oh. the proceedings. <laughs> Give me the documents. <laughs> uh, but uh, I left the industry in '58. Yeah. Uh, saying nasty things about Duncan Sands. And uh, because the things he was doing were having a major impact on the Hawker Sidley Group. Yeah. Certainly yeah. they were in A.B. Row in Manchester.
1: Yeah. Uh, undoubtedly. I mean yes, it, it, it in a sense it's it, it is very frustrating not to not to get the complete picture um, because particularly because it's a very uh, i mean you you've got it, it was it was with but also uh, arnold hall had just joined hawker Siddeley in the late fi- in the late 50s and i met him again when i when I I, I I he was one of my interviewees for for my for my book and he was a toughy he was the ruthless driver i mean a, um, going leaping forward, um, he really took Tony Ben on in 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 the in the early seventies over what became the one four six. He you know he didn't want that program to go ahead, and he said, "Well, if you want it, Mr. Ben, support it. Give me the money. Um, I'll take you to court." I mean, he, he was that sort of he was that sort of sort of person, very very hard nosed, and it, it even from the bits of evidence I've got that hawkers were driving a what might an internal rationalisation program. They, I mean, I still haven't quite got to, to grips with how Hawker's ran itself in in the nineteen fifties. You know, with, I mean, I got the impression that Avro and Gloucester and Armstrong they they, they sometimes competed with each other for, um, for for the same contract. So it was it was an oddity, so a loose coalition of um, uh, 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 of companies. But once the once Sandy's Sandy's made his uh, you know his demarche in fifty seven, and other pro- and Hawker's lost other programs like the. Um, the propose, I think they were going to share development with Bristol, on the Bristol 200. And um, that was another linkage that, that the hawkers were, were, were forging with Bristol. The, um, um, Hall and his team said, well, okay, we've got, we got to get our own house in order. Bang, bang, bang. Start closing factories. Dragging these com- producing a, a, an integrated company out of the hawker coalition. And, okay, what's left? Oh, hmm. We don't think much of Bristol. But Blackburn, yeah, they've got a contract. We'll have them. And they've got nowhere else to go, because they're competing with Vickers and English Electric on the TSR2. You know, even then you could see that you know they potentially a or Even before um, um, we get into that 1960s potential conflict between um, Buccaneer and TSR2, more clearly evident. Um, and the dealings with Hanley Page. You know, what have you got, Fred? Sir Fred. Not a lot, real, is it? You, you know, you've lost half your contract with the Victor. Oh, not much there. Oh, rat- not much. Oh, Herald. Oh, it's competing pretty. Oh,
2: oh
1: not much. You've got, you've got much, not much hope there. You know, the ruthlessness. I think is even from the bits I've seen are quite evident. But I would love to see more about how you know how, what was the Hawker view of the world. Uh, because uh, they are the they are the silent it's the silent partner um, and the way in which de Havilland fall into the, uh, the, uh, that, that, sadly enough we talk about the, um, he's gone now but some of the papers it's always the papers are missing you know things run out and you know something disappear the actual the, the in the de Havilland papers we have all the stuff about the negotiations with English Electric Vickers but then. They've gone. Everything that deals with Haw- with, with, with hawkers has gone. It's suddenly we're into the minutes, and we're we're now part of the Hawker Siddeley group. Oh, bugger! You know, it's you know, it's, it really is. You know, with one bound, de Havilland are shafted. Thank I'm going to, I'm going to hide Frank now. Frank
2: Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, very interesting evening, uh, uh, Keith. Uh, very interesting indeed, and um, it'll be my pleasure in a few minutes to propose the vote of thanks. but before we get to that, um, perhaps I could actually raise one or two points that might uh, require a response or invite a response. Your comments about Hanley Page and uh, Sir arnold Hall uh, very interesting, one of our very respected colleagues in the aeronautical history sphere, Harry Fraser Mitchell, sadly isn't able to no, be I'm here tonight, not. but he will be very much involved both in the Concord meeting next week and the Hanley Page celebrations in September. Um, talking to Harry... Which I might not be able to go uh, to. Well, talking to Harry, there are there's no doubt that he feels from his own activities in the hanley page association that arnold hall was a, a very tough guy in the way he dealt with hanley page yeah. you know he uh, uh uh i think harry would feel that uh, arnold hall's um, pretty brutal offers uh to hanley page were very significant in um you know hastening the downfall of Hamlet hmm. page, well, that's one thing. The other point that I, I I'd like to make, and it's more of a question yeah. uh, there hasn't been much discussion tonight about the technical side of things, and it does seem to me that in all this, although essentially we're talking about firms merging, we're talking about the finances, the politics, and so on hmm. but A significant factor in in the picture is the technical side, and I do feel myself that there has been a regrettable tendency in this country to be slow to learn about things technically. Um, For example, uh, it was mentioned earlier that uh, the... um, the, the great difference between the Boeing <coughs> airliners with yeah. the engines under the wings and the the uh, de Havilland ones and uh, 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 vickers ones with as vickers used to say the clean wing oh. and they would they would make <coughs> great proclamations about how superior their concept was to the engines under the wing one mm. there were other things around which I think our firms often. Uh, decided to do things in a certain way, in design terms, and then stuck to it with teeth gritted through thick and thin after that, and they would always claim that, you know, our way is the best way. And I think there's this problem even between the firms. As you said earlier, strong strong personalities in charge, but I think that the technical people dug themselves into holes as well and were not... Flexible enough often to learn from the competition and say right let's do it their way yeah. uh, perhaps you'd like to comment on uh, I, I mean I
1: far be it from me cause I, as you know full well um, I, i'm not a I'm not a technical historian
2: and I, I
1: wouldn't that's one of the reasons I shy away um, from um, from hypotheticals um, what I was conscious about in, in, a, in a sense is it it is a the nego- I, I I'm fascinated by the, by this interplay and I, I might have to sort of go back to my notes and all the rest of it uh, the interplay between the, um, De Havilland and Vickers over the one two one and the VC seven and the VC eleven um, because you know if you look at this rationally you now Vickers said well they've got a programme we could build on that okay uh, I think Vickers people thought that. Genuinely, BEA had made a big error, and De Havilland had fallen into the trap by downsizing the, the one two one in in fifty nine fifty eight fifty eight fifty nine, and and Vickers, I suspect, actually had got the the seven two seven slot. Um, they got the seven two seven slot lined up, um, but you know, in a, in a rational world, they would have said, okay, we'd have, there would have been assur- big assurances about the two aeroplanes, but they're not because you. you because I think we're looking to looking to keep Weybridge alive, uh, and clearly Hatfield was not, Havilland was not going to give up Hatfield, so you immediately had um, some, some pretty aggressive thinking about, about about the airplanes, but the technical side of it, I, 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 leave to, I I have to leave to, 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 to or not i 'm looking at Andrew, but there are plenty of people here who also look at this. I am not entirely convinced um, and I, whether people like Havilland and I, he was a Lovely man to talk to. Whether they really had any grasp on the technical stuff, they did see it as a, they did see it as a, uh, as a as a as a as a manipulative issue. Any old bunch would do, as long as they were bigger than the bits they had previously. Now that might be. I think that might be. A, that I might be slandering some, slandering the dead here. Um, but I, I'm not entirely convinced that, that that the the ministry at that level had at real. They were prepared to trade them away. I Misands mean, with you know valuation. Oh, we can well finesse valuation. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, you, excuse me. These are private companies, shareholders. You know, you got to you got to make legally sound bids, due you know, due diligence and all that stuff. And Tony's, oh well, we'll sort that out.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, yes, Patrick Hassel, a, a comment and a, a question. Uh, the comment um, that. Uh, I I feel obliged to uh, react to as a a Bristol Rolls-Royce Heritage Trust man uh, to your rather uh, perhaps unintentionally dismissive reference to Bristol Sidley Um, and uh, perhaps remark that I have been told that in 1962 uh, Bristol Sidley was considering a takeover bid for Rolls-Royce. Cool, Uh, Cool. I haven't found evidence of that, but I have been told uh, that 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 was uh, discussed. Cool. Um, and you can imagine it because at that time, in fact, Bristol City was yeah. much, uh, looked to have stronger prospects. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It had TSR2, it had uh, yeah. the yeah. BS100 for P1154, yeah. it had the Olympus 593 for Concorde, whereas the JT3D was killing off the Conway very rapidly, Avon and Dart were running down, and the Spey was not uh, demonstrably a success uh, by that time. Of course, the cancellations of 64-65, uh, reversed that entirely. Yeah and uh, resulted in the um, the merger of Bristol Siddeley and uh, Rolls-Royce. Um, okay, they bought the Hawker Siddeley half, but uh, Bristol Aeroplane Company merged with Rolls-Royce at that time. Um, so that was my, my comment. My question was, I was intrigued by your uh, reference to Shawcross's uh, observation in his letter that Vickers had political advantages. And <laughs> I wondered if you'd like to enlarge on that, Yo. because it does seem very odd that you know vicars, in this great financial, uh, great financial problems, not able to support their own projects from internal funding, whereas the Havilland were with Airco, largely yeah. supporting one to one, and yet the government favours vicars. Yeah. Why?
1: A cheap, a cheap joke or smart ass remark about Bristol Sidley. I think it, it, that I, more work does need to be done, I, but it's bit, it's a little bit out of my frame um the negotiations eventually would lead to, to Roll's acquisition. But it, I take, I take I very take your point that the Bristol Siddley was a viable operation. One of the reasons why I think Rolls uh particularly when Pratt when, when, when Bristol Siddley and Snackma um got the license for the for the Pratt and Whitney um is it seven? Uh, JT-9D. JT nine d jt T nine. Um but but going back to your comment about Vickers. Ah uh, yeah I have to. I now have to go over old ground, really, to some extent. But I think most people were surprised when Vickers got the OR three three nine lead, and the TSR two issue. Um, you know, they, Wharton had Wharton had produced, you know, two of the finest post war jet aircraft.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Although they had some grind teeth grinding over the lightning with the Ministry, but on time. You're on time to spec. Beautiful, you're great. English Electric were investing like crazy in the industry. You know, they were probably the most advanced um, set of facilities in the UK, if not in Europe. And they didn't get that. Because, again, and it, Freddie Page's memoirs are quite clear, and I've, I've written those up, which are on, on the web, that because George Edwards was very well placed in Whitehall. Because he's the man that had delivered the valiant on time, on spec and on cost, which was quite remarkable even then for uh, for a military program. So he, he was, in a sense, walking on water. And he's also he was a, a, as as Freddie would recognise the arch manipulator. He's the he's the guy that would I think would have been played by, by Patrick Widmark. in the plane. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he was if he was the model. Um, and he is extremely he was he was extremely good at playing a weak hand. I think underlying it also was the fact that Vickers Aircraft was part of one of the largest engineering companies in Great Britain. So it was Vickers Aircraft that was in trouble in the summer of 59, not Vickers Armstrong, nor English... I, mean, you, 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 I, I, I perhaps dust this over, but we were dealing with two, in those days, quite, you know, behemoth of companies in the engineering sector, and de Havilland was just an aircraft company. Now paradoxically de Havilland thought that was its strength. But the the rules of the game had changed. And I think in in that sense I think the, again, I think Sands and the the ministry had got it right. Perhaps for the wrong reasons, but they had got it right. The future was in larger groups. Better still, had, had the aircraft perhaps been a part of a uh, like, you know, the, the, uh, let me be contentious in the last minute. Had they been like United Technologies or General Electric, you know, a much bigger engineering conglomerate, able to 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 um, to, to to invest resources in in development, and I think that's why that explains that 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 conundrum. Why Vickers were better placed. Edwards's personal skills as a lobbyist, but also I think you were dealing with a governmental perception that Vickers, Vickers English Electric would give better strength overall um, to, to a regrouped industry.
2: Thank you. Fascinating. Well, um, how does one wrap up other than to say what a very fascinating evening it has been? Um, I could sit here a lot longer and I'm sure... Many of you could too, um, and indeed I can't resist the temptation to say something which is not quite the vote of thanks to begin with, and that is a comment on the the English Electric vicus situation. Uh, there was a very interesting, very good uh, one-day conference a few years ago, uh, run by the RAF Historical Society at Bristol. Uh, it was called TSR2 with Hindsight. And they had a lot of major figures there who were able to tell the story of their side of things in the TSR2 uh, story. And in that, um, Handel Davis uh, uh, confessed, if that's the right word. I think it probably is in a way. He he d- did say that uh, he was certainly giving advice within the ministry to the effect that a combination between English Electric and Vickers would be a good thing, um, uh, making use of the combination of uh, English Electric's technical uh, strength and technical experience in high-performance aircraft since the war, and the leadership available from vicars in the form of Sir George Edwards, specifically. And Handel, I remember saying on that occasion, I think it's written up in the proceedings, that he, he had some conscience about it, although he did say he was implementing what was government policy, i.e. encouraging mergers. But he, he did say that uh, Edwards didn't really devote the attention to TSR2 that people had expected, because he was struggling with the VC-10, etc. And uh we uh, were going through a difficult period. And of course, TSR2 itself became something of a nightmare, technically. And the uh, requirements were extended successively, and it became worse and worse. And of course, ultimately, with the cancellation. But that came back to me this evening, and I think it's an interesting feature of the scene. Um, I have to. I have, I have
1: to talk about because there's an interesting point about um, the extent the extent of knowledge here. I don't think the Ministry of Supply knew just how poorly, um, because we're coping with the Vanguard Bc10. The internal, the, inter- the internal documentation is quite clear. They had made a <coughs> real pig's ear of their cost estimation. Now, they've, they've done parametric studies based on scale up of the reviving. Of the, of the the and they were in trouble. And I don't think the of supply knew how deep problem... I think they were sort of commercial issue, you know, of not
2: selling as well. And I don't mm. think they fully appreciate the extent to which Vickers had fouled up their management, their internal project management. Well, thank you. That, that's a very interesting comment, Keith. I, I could imagine that being the case. Um, anyhow, we have had a tremendous evening. I found myself thinking about what ifs. Uh, I wondered about going back to TSR2, what would have happened if English Electric had been teamed with another firm and had been placed in the lead, um, so that they might have got away from this, this tension. Uh, I wasn't too clear on which firm it should have been that they should have teamed with, possibly Bristol, but I don't know. Anyhow, um, I did find myself in very strong agreement with what uh, with what Keith said towards the very end of his his talk, along the lines that he felt that the overall ideas of encouraging mergers in the industry were basically right and you know we should we should we should not decry those but that the way in which it was done was very unfortunate and it was unfortunate on more than on one side it was unfortunate uh, in the government in the politicians in the ministries and also in the firms to some extent and i think that's a very important message for us to take away on that score i'm reminded of what happened at the end of the Cold War in America. Uh, I can't remember the names of the people or the date, but I do recall around the 1990 mark, there was apparently a, an event in the USA <clears throat> when the Department of Defense pulled together the, the, the chief people of all the aircraft firms sat them down together and it was an event which was colloquially described as the Last Supper. And in fact, they were lectured strongly to the effect that things are going to be different. So you chaps, if you want to survive, you better organize some groupings. I believe that that, that happened. And you know, that was, if you like, leadership, which was absent here. Um. I also had a great uh, uh, sympathy and agreement in my mind with uh, Keith's remark that the sociology of these mergers was a fascinating subject. I think it is. I think that would bear further study, both at the top level and down in, within the, the companies. In my own experience, which has been largely on the engine side, I know that it takes often a very long time for two firms that to have come together to really merge into one effectively. There are, there are different views, different practices, and you only really get it pretty well after a generation of people have, have moved on. It can be encouraged by transferring people between sites, but it is a difficult process and I think this needs to be uh, part of the general consideration of the whole scene. I think Keith has left us all with a lot to think about. Uh, It's been a lively discussion. I think I'm sure many of us feel that there are lots of further points to be gone into. But most of all, I'd like everybody to join me in thanking Keith for a most, I think Kit said, a provocative lecture, it really was, and a most interesting and serious lecture about a very fascinating subject thank you very much